Hi friends, this is Paul Durham, and you're listening to Telling Lies to Children, coming to you as always from the coop, the writer's coop at the edge of the swamp. This is actually episode 10 of the podcast, and 10 is not a particularly large milestone when it comes to podcasts, I don't think. I mean, there are podcasts with hundreds and thousands of episodes out there. But uh, I'm pretty happy with it and uh, still going strong. Here's 10 down and hope for many, many more. Uh, so before we get started today, I just wanted to say a hello and thank you to my new friends, the fourth and fifth graders at Marshwood Great Works School in South Berwick, Maine. I had a, a really fun school visit with them last week. Um, uh, I think I had, uh, in addition to books, I probably signed more hats, t-shirts, Pokemon cards, uh, notebooks, I think the very first pair of socks that I've ever signed. Um, so I had more of that stuff, I think, in one day than I have in, in, in the past three years, probably. So it was uh, it was a ton of fun. It was a great way to kick off uh, the fall school visit season. And uh, all the staff, students, uh, the principal, um, the librarian, everybody was just terrific there. So it was a lot of fun. So for this uh, episode 10, uh, I'm actually really happy to have someone on uh, the show that I've been looking forward to chatting with for a long time now. His name is Jonathan Oxier, and if you're a Kids Lit fan, you've probably heard of him. If you haven't, you probably will soon. Um, Some of his books include Peter Nimble and His Fantastic Eyes, Sophie Choir and The Last Story Guard, that came out this spring, Uh, The Night Gardener came out uh, two years ago, and uh, was just a, a huge uh, critical success. It's actually been optioned by uh, by Disney. And uh, most recently, uh, Jonathan actually did a book in the popular Spirit Animals series. And that just came out, I think, about a week or two ago. So I, um, I had, a, a, like I said, a great, great chat with Jonathan. It was great to finally uh, speak with him. A, a really smart guy. Um, incredibly talented. I know I say that about a lot of my guests. I'm big fans of almost everybody I have on the show. Uh, but I, I do think Jonathan Oxier is one of those guys that you'll be hearing about um, for a long time in the future um, as far as uh, major lists and awards and, and things like that go. He's already I mean, he's already on his way there, and I, I think there's really big, big things in store for him in the very near future. So um, I hope you enjoy today's episode. I really had a great time chatting with Jonathan. So pick it up with us after the intro. Thanks for joining us today. Shh. Are the kids gone? Good. It's time for Telling Lies to Children with me, your host, Paul Durham. This is a first-of-its-kind podcast, one hosted by a children's author, that's me again, but intended for adults who live and breathe children's literature. That's you. Whether you're a librarian, a media specialist, a teacher, or a parent, We all work with children every day, but sometimes it's nice to talk like adults with adults who share our love of children's books and publishing. I'll be chatting with editors at the world's biggest publishing houses, literary agents, award-winning authors, booksellers, librarians, and even young readers. Join me and my guests as we give you a candid, behind-the-scenes look at children's publishing, the business of telling lies to children, but only the best kinds of lies, of course. Welcome, and I hope you enjoy the show. Jonathan, thanks again for joining me. I'm really glad we were able to put this together. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. For anyone who's listening, um, we actually, we we share a literary agency. So so I've sort of been watching your uh, career from afar a little bit. Um, you're also like nice. a, like a creep. Yeah. Like, yeah. Like a, like a, like a creepy stalker. I've been yeah. sort of, I've been sort of peeking in on what you've been, what you've been doing. <laughs> <laughs> but I, um, but, I'll, but, but I also, I just, I just really enjoy and, and, and I love your work and I, my percent, my, we've never had a chance to talk in person before or over Skype for that matter. And I sort of get the impression, my impression that I've created, the story I've told myself about you is that you're kind of a guy who does it the right way and you've done it the right way and success has come to you 
uh, doing it that way. And and I, I was wondering, you know, maybe after this podcast, you it will help me confirm or deny that. <laughs> but but, um, but could you could you just a, a little bit, you know, take me through sort of, you know, how how you got your how you got your start? I mean, did you you got you got an MFA? I mean, were you writing in college? How did you how did you get your start? You know, on this path. Well, uh, I'm utterly delighted. First of all, uh, I have to say I'm a giant fan of your books. I, I'm a fan enough that I blurb Luck Uglies. I didn't know you at the time, but I uh, I read that book and I thought uh, it's the kind of book I wished I could have read at that age. Uh, so the feeling is absolutely mutual in terms of um, feeling like you're doing it right. I'm also delighted by that uh, because when I look at the choices I've made and the mistakes I've made, uh, I do not see uh, kind of a single um, clean, straight path um, that led me to where I am right now in terms of the types of stories I'm telling. Um, I bounced around in a, a number of different mediums. Um, uh, you know, even I, I always wanted to tell stories from a very young age, but I, I wasn't the most confident writer. Uh, you know, when I was a kid, that was a matter of like being a poor speller or whatnot. But uh, but I really just didn't enjoy the act of writing as much as I liked stories. So I was doing a lot more stuff. I, I, my mother was a painter growing up, so I did a lot of art. I thought I was going to be an illustrator, um, either doing comic books, but then later kind of really falling in love with like, picture book illustration and and, um, and things like that. Uh, but I, I was not a very strong artist, um, <laughs> which... Well, you're strong, sort of you were strong enough that. to illustrate your first book. Or at least, yeah. Yeah, right? Yeah, so my first and my third book, I, I did do illustrations on. And, I, and I'm proud of them. I like them. Um, uh, but I'm realistic about the fact that uh, a more professional artist would have turned out that work at a higher caliber in about a, uh, a quarter of the time. Um, so I still draw a lot. I love drawing. But I, I, I basically realized that I, as an artist, could not tell the sorts of stories that were interesting to me. And so um, I remember near the end of undergraduate, I'd been working in theater. I'd been doing art. Those were kind of my twin uh, foci. And, um, and I just realized that I, I needed to learn how to write. Um, because the sorts of stories going on in my head, the sort of the ambition I had as a storyteller, I, I just wasn't going to be able to pull it off um, in, a, in a more visual media, medium. So that was the time that I started writing a lot. But even then, I was not writing books. I, I was writing a lot of plays because I was in a theater program. And uh, one of the great things about theater is how low the barrier is um, to experimentation. You really do just need a space and a couple of willing actors, and you can put something up on its feet, and you can see people react to it. And that's that ability to... Um, kind of uh, try and fail and try and fail over and over again. Um, the ability to have so many iterations so quickly is a real gift that novelists don't really get because often you labor for five years quietly in a corner and then you share a novel with someone and then you learn it didn't work. That's like, right. oh, start over. <laughs> I'd much rather have those iterations, those little cycles happening much more quickly, which, which theater allowed. Um, so I thought I was going to be a playwright. I went to graduate school. I got an MFA in playwriting. Um, from Carnegie Mellon, uh, which is a great program. It's very intense, uh, very competitive. Um, and, uh, and I definitely learned there that in the same way that I was a bad artist or a not good enough artist, I was also not good enough as a playwright uh, to really succeed in that world, um, which is a bonus because turns out no one can succeed in that world. Um, <laughs> unless you're Lin-Manuel Miranda, no one's making a living writing plays. Uh, the playwright is always the first person they ask uh, to give up uh, any pittance of pay they were getting to keep the production alive. Um, and so uh, so again, I kind of was, was sort of flailing around trying to figure out what I was doing. I, I was trying to do some screenwriting, which was working a little more because my background as an artist led to visual storytelling. Um, uh, and, and that was a slightly good fit, but it was in that time that I was feeling really frustrated and unfulfilled, um, that I basically sat down, um, and started writing what I really wanted to do. You know, I, it started almost as a writing exercise. What do I, what's the story I really want to have be in the world? And I ended up writing, um, the first chapter of Peter Nimble and, uh, the feeling was electric. It was so much more rewarding than any of the other story, storytelling work I'd ever done. Um, and I sort of fell down a rabbit hole. So it, over the course of a month, I wrote, uh, the entire first draft of Peter Nimble. Um, I was just, wow, that's true. Yeah. Yeah. That's, 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 that's pretty, that's a great productivity there. That's, that's <laughs> it was. Yeah. Yeah. And I will give you three easy steps to replicate. No, I won't. Um, but <laughs> again, uh, it was a gift from the universe. Um, yeah. I think it was, I think it was a sign of how much sort of pent up frustration I had. 
um, about the gap between what I wanted to be doing and what I was doing. And, uh, and, and truth be told, you know, I wasn't that strong of a writer, certainly not in prose. So I had built some chop, chop, chops in dramatic storytelling, uh, but I really wasn't a prose writer. So I, the, the first draft was fairly awful. Um, and probably worse than a lot of other people's first drafts. I know we're all supposed to say first drafts are garbage. This one um, was a well-structured uh, story. Um, the structure remained intact almost for the entire uh, entire, entire uh, duration of its creation. Uh-huh. Uh, but on a sentence level, on a paragraph level, it, it was just truly a mess. Um, and so I went out to Los Angeles and started uh, trying to build a career as a screenwriter. Um, again, I learned I was maybe good enough to get hired once in a while or to get someone to pay me, I was not good enough to get people to uh, invest millions of dollars into shooting what I was writing. <laughs> were, you, were you writing for TV or film or what were you? I, you know, I, I really loved features. And this was another thing that happened that I couldn't control. But I, I fell in love with movies, watching original movies. And, and by the time I, I moved there, um, well, my first of all, pretty much as soon as I kind of got started, the writer's strike happened, which meant I wasn't even allowed to sit down and have meetings with anyone. Sure. Um, uh, and... Uh, and the, the bigger piece of it, though, um, was that uh, people had stopped making original features. Um, I was not a big TV guy. I, I still don't really watch that much television. I don't like um, serialized or episodic storytelling very much as a, as a, as a reader or audience. Um, I wanted to do original movies. And every time I got in a meeting with an executive, they'd say, here's a comic book we want you to adapt. Here's a short story we want you to adapt. Here's a kid's book we want you to adapt. And uh, and I'd read that stuff. and I'd get really annoyed Uh because uh, I didn't want to just adapt to someone else's world. I wanted to uh, create my own world and characters. And it was obvious that that sort of storytelling was not being allowed. Original storytelling was not being allowed in features with regularity. Uh, and so that's when I kind of pulled that book back out and, and thought, well, if this is the place, that first novel, that first rough draft I wrote, if that felt good and felt right and felt like the better fit for me, maybe I should keep working on that. And so kind of on nights and weekends, even though my day job was still writing, uh, my, my weekend <laughs> passion pursuit was also writing. Right. Um, and, uh, and I think, you know, I just had to keep writing the book over and over and over again and kind of learn from those mistakes that again, the power of iteration, um, I think all told, uh, Peter Nimble took about 20 page one rewrites, uh, between, you know, that first draft to when it hit the bookstore shelves. Uh, and every one of those drafts was absolutely essential because I, I was really groping around in the dark for a long time. Uh, trying to uh, make it match what was in my head, what I knew it could be. Um, it takes a long time, and I think it, almost every writer I've ever talked to has, in that way, a very similar journey, which is um, uh, the, the first one is never easy. Uh, maybe easy ones come later, but there's so much learning that happens in that first book you do. And you know, Peter Nimble took me seven years from start to finish, uh, and I think if I'd even lost six months of that runway time, the book wouldn't have worked uh, the way it did. Uh, so to me, that... That's that's essential. That's the real education. Yeah, it's you know it's really interesting. That speaks to the importance of rewriting and and really you know polishing that manuscript and and that story into making something uh, that ultimately was 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 terrific and 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 wonderful. Um, but it's you know you you talked about how that first draft came out of you from somewhere in you know about a month's time. And I, you know, I've heard that before too. And and I have, I have a similar experience, not quite a month's time, but, uh, you know, there's something about first novels. I think that somebody, you know, somebody else said this, I won't take credit for it, but it's like uh, a lot of authors, they're like, it feels like they're channeling something with that first novel, right? Like it's been Mm -hmm. inside you simmering maybe, if not for a lifetime, for a long time. And, and it's like that first one. I think you, you, you're, I absolutely agree that you learn so much as what it means to really write a novel and, and, and to be an author. But that first, sometimes that story's in you and it seems like that mm. first draft or the story itself for so many authors, that first one is the one that's the most pure. And it's like the, it's, it's almost like this great release. Like it's this, you know, this big ball of creative energy finally has a chance to come out of you and, and find a home on a page. Um, for me, I, it, you know, writing my first book is, I think will always be my favorite, no matter what I may accomplish in my career. That first one, there was just something special about the process for me. Does, does Peter Nimble sort of hold a place like that in, in your heart still? Or? Yeah, I think certainly sort of the affection I feel for that book and the character, because I can, unlike the other books, if I, if I try to 
put myself in the space of writing the other books, it's putting myself in a space of pretty unmitigated misery um, <laughs> uh, in terms of the actual writing well, hours. Well, I hope making you talking about it won't put you in. Much <laughs> and now I'm sad. Um, uh, but for Peter Nimble, no, I, I can still like remember those. And, and honestly, when I got like blocked enough uh, on some of the later books, I, I would, I literally, I, I moved away to LA for a number of years but I happened to move back to Pittsburgh where I had studied graduate school where I'd written that first draft of Peter. And I, I went back to the exact same coffee shop, sat in the same spot, listened to the same fairly terrible music um, in order to kind of uh, recreate that that moment. And and uh, because, you know, I'm always kind of chasing that original high of, of the exuberance of a story just spilling out of me. Um, I agree with that completely. And I think one of the reasons maybe uh, uh, your experience or my experience, that that first draft kind of coming out of you quickly you know, one of the joys and pleasures of it is that you don't know the rules. And, um, and so you really are playing. And, um, and I find that first draft in the best way possible can be a very selfish writing experience where you're just trying to put down the thing that will bring you some joy. Um, and later I I get plagued by thoughts like, well, I know this would bring me joy, but it doesn't really, it's not going to work down the road. And it was so great in that first draft to not care about the fact that half the stuff I put on the page would have to be cut. Um, uh, the, the sort of pleasure of ignorance there in, in creation was, was a real gift. Well, you're, I mean, you're, you know, you're four or five or so books into your career now. Do you, when you write, I know this happens to me, do you hear your, even as you're writing your first draft, do you, do you hear your editor's voice in your head saying, are you already sort of wrestling with, wrestling with your editor a little bit about things that you know that they're going to say and like they're going to want to cut or they're going to want to have you change? Uh, unfortunately, uh, yes. And in a way that's almost paralyzing. Um, I'm, I'm extremely slow between books. I mean, my second book took me nine years. Um, and, uh, and, and a lot of it was for the reason that, that frankly, my, my knowledge of what was right and wrong in terms of uh, craft, uh, was at a point that was, was higher than my skill. And so I was, I, I'm really not comfortable proceeding unless I believe in what I've already written or, you know, I believe the foundation is firm. And that can be a really, really terrible, terrible way to go if you're a little bit lost. Um, and I wouldn't say it's my editor's voice so much. My, my editor is wonderful, and I love the fact that she brings things out of the story and brings things out of me that I couldn't do myself. Well, it, could um, be a nice, it could be a very nice, gentle voice. I'm not saying, yeah, it's, a bad, I'm not saying it's a harsher, screechy voice. Just, <laughs> just well, it's in the, there. <laughs> the fact of the matter is I'm much harder on myself than my editor. I guess. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, her, if she had any wish about our working relationship, it would be that, um, <laughs> that I give up on the book about four drafts before I do. Right. Um, uh, because I really, you know, it, it, we continually have a relationship where she'll ask, uh, ask me to do a quick proof on, you know, some spelling changes and I'll come back with, you know, 20 pages of revisions, um, for the entire book, uh, which, you know, I'm getting better at, but that voice, that, that level of kind of focus and, and, uh, is, is there almost from inception nowadays, which if you know a way to get past that and shut it down, people always talk about throw up drafts, just put it out there and then you can kind of clean it up later. I desperately wish I could do that. Uh, and it's never succeeded. That's hard. Um, what, you know, you, you talked about nine, your second book of course is, uh, the night gardener, um, which, and, and I'll, I'll wait a minute before I go on and, and, and rave about how terrific a book that is. Um, but you mentioned that it was, it was nine years in the making. Now, was that nine years from when you finished Peter Nimble or was that, was that a parallel project you were working on while you were trying to get Peter Nimble published? How did, like, how did that time frame work? So I know that there was, uh, it, there was a lot of overlap. So um, basically, I, I about six months after that first draft of Peter, I started writing Night Gardener um, and got a first draft relatively quickly and just had to. And Night Gardener was was different than Peter, too, because um, with Peter, the, the first draft was terrible, but it's all there. I mean, almost plot point by plot point, character by character. It's all in the right place. It was just a matter, frankly, of improving kind of my, my prose and um and my mastery of how to tell stories through prose um uh, mastery is a strong word <laughs> facility yeah, um, it, it, it's not that i mean it's it's I, I, as a as a third party i would say it's not that it's not that strong a word i mean the night gardener was just a, just a, a beautiful wonderfully written book um as somebody who does this and is difficult to impress um it was you know peter nimble was terrific i love peter nimble uh 
the jump between Peter Nimble and the Night Gardener, uh, you know, the Night Gardener was was one of the best books that came out that year. I mean, it was it was it was it was amazing. It was it was it was it was truly, uh, you know, it was truly a, a beautiful, incredibly well written book and incredibly incredibly mature for somebody who's just spent. 15 minutes telling me about how he doesn't think his prose is all this. All this. <laughs> <laughs> well, obviously uh, that, that, that means a tremendous amount. Um, and so thank you so much. And uh, night gardener is a, tr- a funny book that way because um, uh, kids still prefer Peter Nimble. Um, I think I was really writing Peter Nimble for a uh, 10 year old me. Um, and there's a, other kids who are like me at 10 years old. And, and, and it, the, Peter Nimble is the book that kids will come up to me and say, I've, I've read this book 10 times. I, I see that. Uh, I, could, I could see why. But Night Gardener is the one that grownups really like. Yeah. <laughs> and I think I wrote, I wrote Night Gardener for 30-year-old me. Right. Um, and uh, it, it was, you know, to go back to your other question, I was doing it sort of concurrently to Peter. And then once Peter was done, I spent about uh, three solid years uh, uh, on Night Gardener after that, that where, where that was kind of night and day all I was doing. Um, uh, and it you know, it was, it's, it's always hard. <laughs> um, uh, I'm very, again, I'm very jealous of writers who seem to kind of have it spill out of them. Um, but, uh, but Night Gardner was a, a book that in its own way, um, and pretty much all my books kind of have functioned this way thus far. Um, they're always sort of working. It's, a, it's an opportunity for me to work through, uh, traumas in my own life, however big or small. Um, uh, and, uh, the problem is sometimes when you pick a story to work through a, a personal problem, if the problem is small, maybe the book can move more quickly because you're you're curing yourself in a couple sessions. Sure. Uh, but if the problem is big and if the problem is fundamentally unanswerable, uh, that can get a little more hairy. Absolutely, and um, and you know, it, I was wondering you know, when you were answering the question with, with respect to, to Night Gardener. Um, would you say that Night Gardener uh, was a turning point in your career to some extent? Oh, absolutely. Um, uh, so not to get into the nitty gritty of kind of how, at least my experience, how publishing worked. Um, uh, but Peter was was a debut, which means, you know, it was a crowded yep. season, lots of new books coming out. No one knew what it was. Um, it had a pretty cover, um, which I don't I can't take credit for. Uh, that was all Gilbert Ford and Chad Beckerman, uh, who's the designer at Abrams. Um uh, it was a nice little package. Uh, it made it it made a little bit of noise. A couple of people had kind of heard about it, but it certainly wasn't a book people were talking about right. in any way. Um, reviews were all positive, but none of them were ecstatic. Uh, the thing that made Peter work was um, I was on the road for that first whole year um, doing free school visits uh, and events like that, which uh, you know authors kept telling me I, I'm I'm not supposed to do them for free, but I, I wanted to get the book out there. It makes and sense. So, I did I did a year of free visits. I, I think a lot of people are very successful doing that, and it really helps, and it helps you polish your act, so to speak, right? I mean, exactly. Your, yeah. I felt like by the time I was charging fees, which were which were and are still less than kind of comparable authors, um, I felt like I could look people in the eye and be like, I'm I'm ready. Like, right. <laughs> like, yeah. um, I've really made my bones here. Uh, but all this to say, Peter actually did quite well, but didn't sort of. Uh, in any way uh, penetrate the the gatekeeper community, which is so integral to mm-hmm. children's publishing. Um, and so I think Night Gardener was uh, kind of a surprise to a lot of people because, uh, frankly, not that many teachers and librarians, even though a lot of kids had read Peter Nimble, um, and the people and the adults who'd read it, you know, enjoyed it. Um, but it just it wasn't like people were like waiting for my next book. And I think with Night Gardener, um, it got as warm a reception as I possibly could have imagined from that that gatekeeper community. I think there was an excitement that maybe it, it, that book almost functioned like a debut in that community in terms of like people not knowing who I was and then knew. Um, and that was all I, I agree that that felt like a leveling up. Um, uh, you know, I always try to remind myself that as much as I like teachers and librarians and parents, <laughs> um, uh, what, what matters more is kind of writing books that that find kids um and that connect with kids um but you're right that that was kind of a a a really nice um just kind of surprise when that book came out about how many people sort of uh, became aware of it and and it really it it's been phenomenal and 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 again it was is for anyone who hasn't uh read or heard of uh night gardener um you know personally it's one of my favorites when when people talk about 
uh, you know, what, what are books that, that, you, that you've read that you can, re- that you really love? That's, that's one of them for me. Oh, uh, well, I sure appreciate that. Yeah, no, it, it is. And, uh, and, and reason being, and, and it is certainly, you know, I'm a big advocate of, uh, challenging young readers and it's not, you know, Peter Nimble is, I think probably easier for kids. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also think that I, I don't know about you, Jonathan, but when I write, you know, I write as much for adults as I do for kids. I, you know, they, my my books are children's books in that the publishers and the retailers need to know where to put them um, on shelves. But, uh, you know, my hope is when somebody picks up uh, picks up my books, and I think this absolutely applies to your books as well, is that parents can enjoy them at a whole different level or maybe the same level as, as their kids and that, that there's really something in there for everybody. And as a parent myself, you know, I can't tell you how many times that I've you know, gotten into bed with one of my daughters and, and it was time to read a book and, you know, a chapter in, I'm like, oh, do we really have to read this again? I'm going to pull my hair out. This is all, it's the same thing. You know, it's just terrible. I can't make it through it. Um, to have a book that a parent can actually, or, you know, a parent, a grandparent or babysitter, whoever, whoever can actually sit down and read with their kids and really enjoy and be excited about sitting down and reading. Um, to me, that's an amazing thing. And that's really, that it, that's, I think, being successful as a children's author is, yeah, they're for children, but they're really for everybody, and I and I think you fall in that category. And and um, and I, again, I have all the all the respect in, in the world for, uh, you know, for your work and, and, and the Night Gardener. Again, just uh, just a great book. Can't, can't say enough about it. It's it's uh, it, it's yeah, it's it, it's spooky. It's creepy. I'm a you know 42, 43 year old man. 43 year 43 now. I was younger when I read it, but it, it made me not that much younger. <laughs> um, Your whippersnapper days. Yeah, yeah, but but and, and it, you know there were things that, that made me a little you know got, I got a little nervous about, it, and that doesn't happen very often. So um, so uh, again, all the all the accolades it it, it earned and continues to earn, uh, absolutely well deserved. Um, and and you know I, the other interesting and you know talking about having it make a. a a pivot or, or be a significant book in your career. Uh, I, I realize we're talking about only your second book <laughs> out of the gate here. Um, but it was, if I'm not mistaken, it was optioned by Disney. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. So that, that was a nice, nice little development. Yeah. Now, now are you did, and you know, not, I appreciate we don't get into details, but do you get, do you get a, do you get a, a chance to take a, like a first stab at the screenplay with that or. Yeah. In the case of, in, in this instance, um, so uh, I was brought on to write the screenplay. Um, part that's of the terrific. reason, yeah, that's that's great. Now, yeah, I'm sorry, go on. But I know I know how the I know how that business can work. But it, just at least get at least getting the first shot. That's a big de- you know that's a big deal. Well, it, it was a big deal, and and it, it was wonderful. And talking to other authors, I realized how kind of fortunate I was. Part of the reason uh, I was able to write that um, is twofold. Because the first being, I'd worked as a screenwriter for a number of years, um, uh, so I had a little bit of. Uh, I, I was fluent in that in that world, um, and uh, and and I want to think that even if it wasn't bringing out always my best writing uh, on a level of craft and professionalism, I kind of had that out of the gates. Um, and the other piece of the, the puzzle was the fact that uh, over the course of those nine years that I was writing Night, Night Gardener, I was I was also searching for the right medium for it. So I was trying to write it as a stage piece. Um, I was trying to write it as a screenplay, and I was trying to write it as a book. I was really it took me a long time to to figure out where that story wanted to be. Um, which is to say that, uh, I had pretty, um, I had pretty accurate writing samples, uh, for what the Night Gardener screenplay would look like by the time Disney came calling, sure. uh, because I had, I had tried drafting it as a screenplay. And, and so I didn't just have to convince them to take, you know, crack at me. I was able to kind of just show them something and be like, it'll be like this. Um, right. and, uh, and so that was a, a kind of an unusual circumstance and it did, it was a great opportunity, uh, work with the producers and, and really, uh, kind of hone, tighten and rebuild that screenplay, reflecting all the things I had learned in writing the book. Cause really the story had never, when I was working in those other mediums, I, I hadn't quite, the story had always just been kind of a, a haunted house story. Um, it had been a little creepy, a little bit fun, but it hadn't sort of gained some of the other levels that, that emerged when writing the novel. And so it, really uh, writing the screenplay for Disney, which was a phenomenal experience, um, was a chance to take all of the things I'd discovered in writing the book and put them back into this, um, this other medium. Uh, it was a fantastic experience. I have no idea, uh, what, what the state, you know, various people are reading it, reading it right now. And you right. know, I should hear any second now, which means, you know, it could be, uh, 10 minutes from now or 10 years. Uh, but, yeah. but, yeah. uh, it was a phenomenal opportunity to sort of, um, see that story, uh, through and, and, and also it's, you know, there's nothing more gratifying as 
as a as a novelist to know that um, you know a giant studio picks picks up your book and then uh, is exactly in lockstep uh, with with you in terms of the kind of movie they would want to turn it into. Um, uh, goodness knows there have been a number of cases where people had read The Night Gardener and wanted to turn it into stuff that I didn't approve of. I wanted to turn it into horror movies. They wanted like they wanted to go in all sorts of other directions. And and so one of the things that was most exciting about the Disney uh, deal was the fact that they. I really wanted to make that book and not just use the premise for some other story. Right. Um, something else you mentioned when you talk about how important it is to love to, to be writing for yourself in adulthood. Uh, one of my favorite pieces of writing about children's literature is a, an essay by C.S. Lewis um, called On Three Ways of Writing for Children, where he basically walks through. Uh, he, he explains three ways and right at the beginning, he says two of them are terrible. One of them is the one I do, um, and and it's sort of his his endearingly uh, self satisfied way right. he walks through uh, his process for creating creating children's stories. But also he just kind of veers off after a page or two and just starts talking about children's literature. And that's when the real gems sort of come in this article. And he and he has a great little uh, moment where he talks about the idea um, that well I'm, I'm, I have it right here. I'm going to read it. He says where there's uh, where the children's story is simply the Oh, sorry. Let me say this. Okay. Uh, I'm scanning. Okay. He says, uh, I never met the wind in the willows or the Bastable books till I was in my late twenties. And I do not think I've enjoyed them any less on that account. I'm almost inclined to set it up as canon that a children's story, which is enjoyed only by children is a bad children's story. The good ones last a waltz, which you can like only when you are waltzing is a bad waltz. Um, and I think that's a pretty stunning and clear distillation of, uh, the difference between the children's books that feel very uh, sort of ephemeral and feel very pandering um, and the ones that feel like they resonate with a magnitude that, that is going to keep them relevant at every stage of your life as a reader. And, and the books that I love, the children's books that I love, um, have this, uh, this, this sense of reverberation with, with yeah, every stage of my life. And so the idea of outgrowing uh, children's fiction is hard for me to fathom um, because it feels like if you're doing it right – um, it's impossible. You can't outrun the questions. Well, I, uh, I, 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 thanks for reading that because I feel far more s smarter than I am. That I'm, at least I'm stealing from C.S. Lewis and, <laughs> when I'm when I'm pontificating about about children's books. Fair enough. <laughs> no, but that's but it's really so. But that does tie into one of the big uh, one of the big questions I wanted to ask you, and and another opportunity for me to to again just sort of gush and praise your uh, praise your your books and and when i when i said at the start that i think you do things the right way um I, this is why um i am of the opinion and and this is just a personal bias um i am really drawn to fiction and, and especially children's fiction um that is i guess what i describe as you know wholly imagined and uh, not so, not necessarily unique, but original in character, if not complete premise. So, uh, I, you know, I think w without without giving you know w without without intending to slight any authors that w that I'm sure we're friends with that we know who who write sort of you know fairy great entertaining fairy tale retellings or or something that's you know derivative of of you know prior. Uh, children's tales and things like that. Um, I have a real bias towards authors who, a uh, bias in favor of authors who get in there and basically create their own fairy tales instead of relying on the old classics or, inst or instead of borrowing too much from the old classics. I think children's literature, you know, everything we do is somewhat derivative. There are a lot of familiar tropes that we, that are just part of what we do. I mean, they're unavoidable, but you know, rather than for me, rather than getting in there and, you know, retelling Cinderella again or retelling, you know, name your name, your fairy tale that we all know, I'd rather, you know, create a new Cinderella, create a new character. And and I think what's so terrific about Peter Nimble and the Night Gardener and, you know, Sophie Choir, which we haven't talked about yet, but that we will, is my sense is that that's the approach you take which is you want to come up with, and I think you said this before is you, you don't want to do adaptations. You don't want to, you know, you don't, you don't want to take something that exists and then, and then 
put a new coat of paint on it and give it a little twist. You really want to come up with something that's 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 unique and 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 original to you. Is is that a fair is that a fair assessment or how do you feel about that sort of uh, idea? Well, I feel great about it. Um, I don't think it's accurate exactly, uh, but <laughs> I'm really glad uh, and, and tickled that that's the impression left. Um, I, I think I, I do really like telling my own stories and making my own worlds and feeling sort of complete ownership uh, over them, um, whether in, in the successes, but also in the mistakes. Um, uh, the thing I don't want is something to be flawed and that flaw is the result of someone having told me what to do and I capitulated. If it's going to have flaws, I want them to be mine um, so I can at least own them. Uh, but it's funny because one of the things, and this is sort of a discovery I, I've made over a couple of years now, um, I actually try to aggressively um, uh, hunt for sort of, I would say, almost low-hanging fruit um, mm. in terms of uh, ideas that are in the air um, that somehow have not either have never been quite put together yet or uh, they weren't put together in a way that, you know, uh, was on my or anyone else's radar. Um, you know, the perfect example, my first book, Peter Nimble, is the story of this 10-year-old blind orphan who also happens to be the greatest thief who ever lived. And that's a cool, punchy premise. Kids get really excited about it. It's very fun to write this character. Um, and uh, I had a, a, just a heck of a time uh, when I was writing it because I was sure that I had stolen the idea of a blind thief from someplace. And I spent a lot of time looking and realized, no, there's, you know, there's blind superheroes like the daredevil. Mm -hmm. um, but, and, you know, there's Margaret Atwood's blind assassin. But, you know, the blind thief character, it's, it's sort of its own thing, even though it feels very familiar. Uh, anyone who kind of hears that premise instantly has a lot of association to instantly hook into it. And that's really cool. If you can find that thing that feels like it's already out there, you know, uh, I have a friend of mine who, who owns a board game shop. I play a lot of board games and, and he always talks about the fact that the, the best new board games don't feel like they were created. They feel like they were discovered. Um, and I'm always looking for a premise that feels that way. Uh, you know, the night gardener is another example. That's the story, you know, this haunted house story. Uh, it's about these two kids who come to this house that's sort of haunted by this creepy old tree that they learned can, uh, grant wishes. Um, and the idea of a tree that grants wishes, I, again, obsessively Googling, like this has got to be from something. And there were a lot of other things to connect to, whether it's the Lotus eaters or the story of the garden of Eden. Um, there were a lot of things that were, you know, had some parallels, but somehow that hadn't exactly been done, um, or at least not in ways I could find or had encountered. Um, you know, and, and my newest book, Sophie Choir, very similarly looking for that thing that, that feels really just in the air, ready to, ready to take. Um, Sophie Choir is the story of this. It's a, it's a companion book to my first book, Peter Nimble, but it's also a standalone kind of set in its new, its own space with its own protagonist. And it's the story about this 12 year old book mender, um, who's trapped in a city that is uh, sort of aggressively turned its back on uh, and on on reading and storybooks and fiction, which they feel like is kind of frivolous and, and sort of impeding their their progress um, as they're kind of on the cusp of the Enlightenment. Um, and uh, and so everyone is excited that getting rid of all their old storybooks and things like that, except for this girl, Sophie, who loves storybooks and fairy tales and nursery rhymes and, and is kind of rushing to rescue them from the trash heap and the bonfire. And she takes them home and, you know, stitches them back together and repairs them. And, and she loves these stories. And, um, and one day this girl, Sophie finds a book that's, uh, unlike any she's ever seen before. Um, the book doesn't seem to be just a regular storybook. It seems to be almost alive. And, um, and the words on the page move right in front of her eyes. And when she asks the book questions, it can open up and show her answers. Um, and, uh, and she learns that this book is actually uh, one volume in a set of four. Uh, it's called The Book of Who. And along with it, there's The Book of What, The Book of Where, and The Book of When. And when you assemble these four books, um, it leads to this, uh, it basically creates this incredible ability to um, speak magic into the world. Um, this was a very fun, exciting premise to explore. And one of the things that I, I, I really liked about it is it, it, in some ways it felt like something I had read before. And I, and I look for that when I'm trying to write something. Um, I hadn't, I don't think there is a, a, a book or a story that involves a set of four books called who, what, where, and when, um, that each sort of connect to one another. Um, I hadn't read stories about really kind of living books that open and operate and function the way these did, but it feels like it's still speaking to a longing that I think was in me and is in a lot of readers. And when I speak to people about this book, there's that, there's this sense that it's, it's almost a story again, that was less told to them than sort of discovered within themselves. 
Um, and that's a very that, that can become a very high bar because you know <laughs> how much of this stuff can you pluck out of the air? But it's always the thing I'm chasing. I always kind of want to actually create something that is the opposite of um, holy uh, mine. I want to I want to create something that somehow feels like it's it's um, it's it's stitched from threads that are the, you know, taken from the fabric of the canon and from our culture and from the whole world of stories that have preceded it. I, yeah. I, I, but I think, I think we're saying the same thing, uh, just in, in different ways, but cause I, cause I absolutely, I, I, what the, I think what the beauty of your books are and books like, like yours are, is that, you know, as you said, you're, you're, you know, you you feel like you're taking low hanging fruit that's out there of ideas that, uh, that are being discovered. Um, and while they're, I mean, they, you're right. They feel familiar. They feel like a book that maybe you've read before. They feel like a story. They feel like they feel. Um, they feel like they're. Uh, they feel like you've come across them, but you can't quite put your finger on it. To me, and I can't remember if it was before we started recording or or, or since we started recording. But you know, we were, I, I I was talking about the idea of I love books that feel timeless because mm -hmm. you don't you don't you know you, they could have been written 50 years ago. They could have been written present day, and and but the book just feels relevant and feels like. They feel it has a classic feel to it, um, even if it was published in you know spring 2016. Um, and and I think that I think that's you know when I say when I say sort of wholly imagined or or uh, you know I would argue that Sophie Choir and Night Gardener and Peter Nimble it really is wholly imagined. I mean you're 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 taking the familiar and you're taking things that that will because they'll resonate with people and that they it'll feel familiar and comfortable it's not like you're taking them to a, a far off science fiction world where they have to completely you know envision you know creatures mm -hmm. and characters who don't exist I, I mean from the author's perspective it really is wholly imagined from your perspective because you are finding these threads and you're creating something entirely new rather than you know rather than taking something that exists as a as a as a as a story and then just trying to put your own spin on it and um but again, I, I think I'm agreeing with you. It, however, I guess we look at it. Ultimately, I, I think your books—they, you know—they are incredibly original, but they feel familiar, and I think that's a great combination. Uh, I know it's what I search for when I'm a reader. I mean, I think yeah. this is switching to movies, but like I think about like a movie that feels so original. Um, I recently rewatched uh, *Princess Bride*, yep. um, which most people have seen it have seen it 50 times. Uh, it's a delightful movie. It's quotable. It's perfectly cast. It's it's as wonderful today as it was in 1980-whatever, uh, it's amazing when you distill it down to its parts because it's all so familiar. It's, mm -hmm. you know, it's a princess in peril. It's a bad duke. It's this dueling drunkard swordsman. It's the, you know, it's the giant. It's the pirate. Um, but somehow, uh, I think you're right that that if those things can be assembled with a, a specific kind of point of view and, and voice, um, it feels it kind of, it, it feels completely new and fresh. Um, but I think part of the reason maybe, and this is maybe kind of a, the idea of like a spoonful of sugar, part of the reason maybe we're willing to accept uh, the new and fresh stuff is because it's so closely packaged to things that we are familiar with yeah. and we are fluent in. Yeah, maybe. As an aside, as, and again, as a, as a screenwriter, have you, have you read like William Goldman's books on screenwriting and things like that at all? Yeah, I, I think I read one of them, um, maybe it's Adventures in the Screen Trade. I, I'm, I tend to be a little bit allergic to books uh, on writing. Yeah. Um, I think they are, uh, you know, I think I, th I think they, they can function almost like opiates for writers. <laughs> they prevent them from just sitting down and, and telling the story. Yeah. Um, and, I, and I probably tend to believe that there's like 10 truly brilliant observations about writing. And any book you pick up will, will give you those 10. Yep. And you'll have your mind blown the first time. Yep. And then you could read 50 more books and you're just going to see... Uh, reiterations of those like basic principles. Um, so I'm not I'm not against them categorically. Uh, and there's a couple that that I that I do like, but generally speaking, I, I find the time that I spend reading books about writing would be better spent either writing my own stuff or just reading a novel. Yeah, interesting. Now, do you do you teach you do you teach in an MFA program? Do you teach students at all? Call you know uh, MFA yes. or BFAs or. or... Uh, yeah, I teach, teach in an MFA program uh, focusing on children's writing at Chatham University. I've actually got a class tonight. Oh, wow. Um, so we're going to be talking about Harry Potter, uh, which, will be, <laughs> which will be fun. I haven't taught that book before. Yeah. And so how, so how do you find – so how do you find um... – You've uh, you've been through an MFA program, um, so and you're again you, you teach an MFA program. What and uh, obviously, uh, unfortunately, unlike you know many MFAs, you've 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 actually 
uh, you know, you can certainly you can go through an MFA program, and there's no guarantee you're ever going to get published or get a sure. get a whiff of the publishing world. It, it's um, you've you know you've been you've done both. Um, how do you you know how do you uh, when you when you speak with your students when you, what kind of what kind of tips and advice do you do do you share? Um, in the MFA program, uh, you know, in the MFA program, what kind, what's your what's your your teaching strategy? I mean, you know, it's I think a lot of us agree, or at least think you can't so much teach talent as you can teach, you know, craft and tips and and uh, and give some practical advice. But certainly from somebody like you, who's who's been through the publishing world and is in the publishing world, I I, I would I would think that, that that you are an ideally situated person to to teach an MFA program because you can you can offer a bit of both. Uh, you know, I think I, I think it's a, there's some value that that brings, and the, but there's some hindrance as well. Uh, presently, one of the things I really love about the teaching I'm doing is I'm actually teaching the lit courses, uh, which is my favorite space to be in because I, I basically, um, you know, it's, it's like an English lit course, but instead of applying a whole bunch of you know weird cultural theories to a book, um, we're we're really looking at the craft of the of the storytelling and the nuts and bolts. You know, one of the things I tell my students on the first day is like. If you're a storyteller, you need to uh, you need to unlearn the idea that your your medium um, involves words. Um, your, your tools that you use are not words. Um, your tools are characters, places, and actions. Um, and and I really try to strip it away because I just want to focus on sort of the the those elements, those craft elements of storytelling. That's a great class. Um, for, I mean, great. It's great fun. Students seem to really like it. Uh, I think when I teach the craft classes, it gets a, gets a little trickier because I, um, you know, I, as I mentioned before, I'm, I'm as hard on myself as anyone. Harder, harder even than probably you know my editor, or, you know, a, lo a lot of readers that I, I send stuff to. Um, and so it's part of me wants to uh, be as hard on my students as I am on myself. Uh, and then another part of me realizes that that will crush every dream that they have <laughs> before they even get started. Uh, and so that dance can be a little bit tricky. Um, one of the things I, I, I have to say that I think I really benefited from, you talked about going back to that question of sort of my, my path to writing children's books. Um, even though I bounced around a lot and, and, and chased some things that didn't work out, I was learning the whole time and I, I was, I'm pretty good at getting out. Um, uh, you know, I'm pretty good at quitting before I'm fired, uh, to use a different <laughs> analogy, um, in terms of, uh, when a thing stopped engaging me and feeling rewarding and feeling like it was challenging me or helping me grow, um, that, that usually meant like I, I would usually be pretty quick to move on to the next thing. Um, which means I would learn a lot, but I, I, I didn't spend time kind of stagnating. Um, but one of the things that was great about an MFA, uh, program in playwriting is uh, that at least in the program I was in, uh, there was zero attention to sort of the minutia of crafting fiction. It did mean that my first draft was very rough uh, because on a sentence level, the prose was not terribly crisp. Um, but that was stuff I was able to kind of learn um, afterward uh, on my own. Um, what the playwriting program did was really, really focus on sort of the fundamentals of storytelling, character, action, setting. Um, and what those mean. And that's great because that's a transferable set of skills to almost any storytelling medium. Um, and, uh, and so one of the things that I try to do is even though this is a traditional fiction program, I, I definitely, when I'm inter interacting with students, I try to steer them away from sort of the, uh, the practices that will help them create a perfect piece of short fiction, short fiction, but won't get them any closer to finishing a novel. All I want to do is get them uh, give them the skills to write a whole novel, um, because I think that uh, that marathon is um, is the first most crucial step is just hitting the end. And that's something I say when I talk to kids, when I talk to my students. Um, the two most important words you're ever going to write as a writer are the end. Um, and kind of on a fundamental level, I don't think um, you can call yourself a writer unless you've finished, unless you're finishing what you start. Um, and that certainly was one of the major lessons I gained from my graduate experience because I was someone who had a million ideas and a million false starts, but actually being forced to sit down and see a story through um, uh, was, was something that I, I had not really been willing to do because it's quite uncomfortable. Um, and, uh, and so I appreciated the boot camp aspect of graduate school for myself, and, and I do try to replicate that for my students and forcing them to run that marathon. Um, that sounds, that sounds like a, it sounds like a great approach. Uh, you know, it, it is, you know, getting to the end is, is so important and so difficult. And it seems like in the, 
know, the world of dis- of distractions and procrastination. I think all writers suffer from procrastination. Um, all aspiring writers, wherever they are in their careers, seem to love to. Not everybody, I, but but people love to talk about. Oh, I'm working on this, or I have a great idea for that, and hashtag am writing and all that, you know, all that, <laughs> all that sort of stuff. I I I I don't have any, I have hardly any Twitter followers, but if I did, I would like I would like to have a, a hashtag that was shut up and create, which is which would basically be get off Twitter, stop talking about writing, stop talking about the process of writing, stop talking about how you want to write, stop talking about writing about all your ideas and lock yourself away and get to the end. Like, you know, like you said, um, because that's, I think is really what's so important as a writer is to, is to sit down and, and, and get it done sometimes. And, and that's not to diminish the importance of writing groups. And, and there's a lot to be taken from, from collaborating and things like that. But you know, it, I, I, when I was beating up myself, like you, like you're your harshest critic. When I, when I, when I, when I'm beating up myself, when I'm getting myself all worked up about, Oh, why didn't this happen or that happen? Or, uh, you know, I, why did the school visit get canceled or why did the publisher do this, do that? I just have to remind myself just to shut up and create because that's where it all starts and ends. You know, that's, that's really the, the core of all of this. If I'm not creating, I'm not doing anything. That That's certainly a feeling that I, I feel quite keenly. I mean, some people I think are able to be online and productive and uh, God bless them. Yep. Also, I hate their guts, uh, <laughs> but, but I'm fully locked away. Uh, I have no internet access when I write. My phone doesn't even have internet access. That's good. Um, yeah. So I'm, I'm kind of a true Luddite uh, for for those hours every day. Um, uh, there was something else that you said that pinged in my head that I've forgotten now. So it must not have been that important. Probably wasn't say. very important. My, my 90% of what I say is not very important. So don't, no, what you it. said was fine. Was, <laughs> I wanted to like add to it and it's gone now. So, um, well, 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 I fear. So there's one more, one more thing I want to congratulate you on. I, I fear that I, I, I may be embarrassing you with all, with all the, this praise. And I, I probably just sound like I've gone on and on, but I, I wanted to congratulate you on, now being a New York Times bestselling author, I mean that's a, that's, and I, if I'm not mistaken, hopefully that's not a, <laughs> that's, hopefully that's not a. That's true. A, a, so okay. yeah, yeah. Still very embarrassing. <laughs> now that's some other guy. <laughs> that would be embarrassing. But I think so. That that's I mean now that was for Night Gardener though, right? So two two years two years after Night Gardener was published, it, it, lo and behold, it pops up on the on the NYT bestsellers list. Yeah, that was uh, that was certainly a surprise to me and my publisher. I was, was going to say, was that was that did that catch you by surprise? Was there any inclination, like in the sales, that they were climbing up, and all of a sudden this was a how did that, you know did you just wake up one day and somebody tweeted you or how did you find so, that? I I, uh, I well, first of all, it was it was it was a complete surprise. I had I had sort of already given my uh, given up on sort of the capriciousness of that particular list. Sure. Yeah. Um, you know, there were there were weeks where I would sell a bunch of books and. Nothing, you know, everyone who was seeing the numbers like this has got to be on the list and like nothing. And there were weeks that like people sold significantly less than me. They got on the list. And basically I'm like, that's not a it seems like a really foolish thing to tie my uh, hopes and dreams onto because I have zero control. Um, uh, You know, the the Night Gardener, this is probably a a great example of kind of the, the wonderful ways. I remember when I sat down with Disney, you know, a year ago when we were starting to conceptualize the screenplay and stuff and, and the executive um uh this guy sam who who i, I really like and he's got some I, I you know half of our conversation was just because he's he's looking for books to adapt and so we just talked about our favorite children's books that have been published in the last two or three years and it was great great conversation and and uh you know he said well how's the book doing you know <laughs> sales wise and things like this and that's a weird question when you're talking to someone from disney because i'm like well it's not making a billion dollars that's what you mean um <laughs> But my metric is different. You know, when I left screenwriting, I left L.A., I moved to Pittsburgh, which was the uh, over and over again voted as the uh, the highest value real estate market in America. You know, I I, I've traded away, you know, a desire for kind of fame and fortune in a a fancy swimming pool for just a stable life, the ability to keep writing these stories full time. And um, but the thing I did say to him that that really bears out um, is basically, you know, I was like Night Gardener's getting a really great reception with all these gatekeepers and um, and to make a comparison to movies. Imagine if all of the reviewers who are on Rotten Tomatoes for every movie, imagine if those people also controlled distribution. Imagine if they owned the movie theaters and the TV networks that would run that movie, you know, on, on the weekends and all, like top to bottom and the video store, or the red boxes or whatever. Uh, that would be a completely different system. And, and in that case, the tastemakers and the critics would have enormous power. Because if they fell in love with a thing, you can guarantee it would be available 
um, to audiences. And that's actually an amazing thing about, it's always a little bit weird the way children's writing is because not only are we writing for readers who aren't ourselves, but we're selling to buyers who are not always our readers. Um, Because usually when you're writing for children, really the person uh, making the choice is the parent um, or it's the teacher, the librarian, the gatekeeper. Um, So there's, there's lots of confusing mediation there. But one of the awesome things is with children's writing, if that gatekeeper community finds a book and loves it and champions it, uh, it can often actually sort of move the needle on a commercial level, which is not true of most other sort of uh, critical spaces, um, uh, you know, with maybe the exception of like a giant whatever fancy review and like New York Times books review. Like most book reviewers don't write a great review and be like, wow, I'm, I'm helping change this writer's life. Right, <laughs> right. But uh, so that was, I think, part of the the reason Night Gardener was a nice slow boil is because it had, it had won a lot of uh, won over a lot of readers in that gatekeeping community, which meant, uh, you know, for years after the book came out, it's been on state lists over and over again, um, and so kind of that community has really amazingly and, and humblingly championed the book, um, which has really kept it kind of turned it into a, a very you know a slow boil that's kind of uh, been rising and rising and rising, which is just tremendous. Um, and like I said, very humbling. Um, uh, I don't put a lot of stock in the New York times list, uh, in part because I can't control it. And also because books, books I didn't like are on it for, you know, 40 weeks in a row. Yeah, well, <laughs> like that. Like, yeah. You know, so I can't feel too good about a thing that I'm like, it, it's, it's nice, but it's not, it's not the job. The job is, as you said before, like sitting down and writing the next book, um, and leaving it all on the page. Right. But, but I guess what, and I absolutely agree with you. I guess what it is, it's, it's one more uh, marketing badge that you've now earned and that you can, you know, even if your books are only on the bestseller list for one week, you get to keep that badge. Yeah, no, I mean, I should be clear. <laughs> right. I have a, I have a tattoo across my chest. Right, that exactly. Says yeah. You're a time bestselling author. Uh, but you, liter- you literally have the badge. Yes, right. Yeah, right there you of go. <laughs> Doesn't everybody get that tattoo? I thought so. But, but again, it is, it, it's a, it's a terrific thing because all you need to do is get it once and then you can slap it on there and it's like, you know, it's like everything else. It's just, it's just another bona fide, right? That you get to add to the, you know, add to the, the, the writer's resume that, that hopefully will, will, will help you, you know, help your good work get get uh noticed by by whether it's one or ten or a thousand additional people all the better oh absolutely no it's it's been a real kick um yeah yeah and how about um so how about how about spirit animals now do you have a you have a uh one of the one of the tomes in the spirit animals trilogy <laughs> is uh it can be can be credited to you now is that is that is that correct yeah so it's and it's more than a trilogy there's uh there they run these books almost in seasons. It's right, not right, like yeah. a TV series, but, yeah. uh, you know, they had a, the first like season or series, I guess is the word. Uh, they had, I think six or seven mm-hmm. volumes. The first one, the whole spirit animals world. These are these scholastic intellectual property books. The first one was created by Brandon Newell, who created kind of a really wonderful world that, that frankly, you know, I remember when speaking to scholastic about it, cause I was quite skeptical going into those books when they, had, uh, kind of first reached out to me and asked if I was interested, but I figured I'd read it. Um, and I enjoyed it much more than I was expecting. And it, and the thing that I, I said then, and I still think is true, is um, you know one of the one of the, sort of the promises of the going all the way back to back to movies, but back to 1999. Uh, one of the promises of the Phantom Menace to me was kind of um, the the excitement of exploring the world of sort of an actual um, Jedi society mm-hmm. and specifically the idea, cause I knew it was going to be Anakin and he was a kid. And I loved the idea of, I mean, it's kind of the, the same itch that Harry Potter scratches where um, going into the secret world and being trained as a child, discovering you are special, getting, getting to sort of discover this, the secret world behind the world that you know, and also getting to discover that you're, you know, awesomely powerful and get to use a lightsaber or whatnot. Um, and those movies, as we all know, fully crapped the bed and <laughs> failed to capitalize on any of that capacity or potential for wonder. Um, and I thought the Spirit Animals books actually really did sort of capture that, that sort of um, bringing kids into sort of a secret society and community where only kids could be the solution to some very, very real problems. And it's, it's a kind of a swords and sorcery you know, epic fantasy thing where these kids get these magical animal companions and have to learn to communicate with them and control them and all this great stuff. Um, but at its core, I really liked that, that idea. And, and it was really fun to tap into when I, when I signed on to do, um, the book, which comes out next week, it's called the burning tide. Um, it was at that point, it was going to be the last book in the whole series. The books are doing really well. So they of course are tacking on 
10 million other sequels now, but, uh, <laughs> they'll, find, but they'll my, find a way to get one or two more exactly <laughs> yeah, on the shelves. Yeah. Uh, my only requirement, and this was an actual requirement is, uh, I said I would do it. I didn't like the idea of having an ending that wasn't a real ending. So I said I would do it, but only if you let me kill a major character. Oh, okay. um, and after some deliberation, they said I could. Uh, and so I do kill a major character, which was immensely gratifying. Cause I find, um, because I really like killing characters. Yeah. Was it, now, was, it, was it a major character that you had particular disdain for, or is it more of like a bittersweet, like you know, somebody? No, no. I just I always proceed with the question of what would hurt most. Yeah. Um, <laughs> what would hurt the most, but be the least disruptive, right. um, to to the trajectory of the plot. Yeah. Uh, that's probably the the calculation to make. Now, did, did you now? Did, and don't answer this if you shouldn't. But did you have to read all of the Spirit Animals books to catch up before you could write yours, or was it was there a some sort of cheat sheet that you provided, or could you read it? Was it, you know, <laughs> maybe maybe you shouldn't answer that question. I don't. You know, I was a big dummy because uh, uh, I thought I had to read them all, and I did read them all, and it took forever. And by the end of it, I still couldn't remember all the details of which <laughs> character comes from which city and what language they speak and what weapon they hold. And right. so at the end, even though I did a, a fair amount of groundwork and read a couple thousand pages of this stuff, uh, I was still just uh, constantly reaching out to the editor. And the other resource that that happens to have, the Spirit Animals fan community is insane. Okay. Uh, the reason the reason I like actually said yes to the book is I went to a bookstore and like found a kid who was like, like it was like a teenage girl in front of the Beatles um, at, a, at a Spirit Animals display. It was this kid. And I didn't know. I started chatting to him. His mother showed up. And I'm like, oh, I know you. You're a librarian. <laughs> but the kid was so obsessive about the world. And I was like, that is really neat. And um, and these kids have created an amazing wiki for that series that has every piece of information you could ever know, like down to like hair and eye color wow. for every character. Um, and that was the most valuable research, resource for sure. Excellent. Well, so somebody did someone did some legwork for you, but man, I, <laughs> but man, I give you credit that you I give you credit reading all those books. That's a, that's well, a, they're that's, fun that's stories. I didn't, yeah. I didn't yeah. I didn't begrudge the time. Yeah, no, that's, I'm not saying that you would, but 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 that, that would be daunting. That might have put say we really have to catch up on a on a whole. Thing. <laughs> but that's and what else? I mean, is you know what's coming up next? Anything that you can anything that you can talk about past spirit animals or? Uh, yeah. So you know, spirit animals was kind of a a, a quick palate cleanser before I dive into my next thing, uh, which is a big, very, I'm very excited about the story. I say it's big. It's not big. It's a very small, quiet story, but it's big because I've got a lot of big emotions I'm trying to (laughs) shove into it. Um, uh, And it's a story. It's called The Soot Golem. I don't know how much I'm supposed to say about it, uh, but the setting and the backdrop has to do with um, chimney sweeps in the 19th century, um, which if you've done any research about that world is horrifyingly bleak. Um, specifically the uh, chimney sweeps at that time would employ children. Uh, they called them climbing boys and they would, um, yeah, yep. uh, you know, shove them up inside chimneys to get them to clean them. And, and, uh, the average life expectancy, um, not life expectancy, basically most chimney sweeps, the, the bulk of them died by the time they were five years old, um, because the conditions were so horrible and dangerous. And, um, and my wife years ago, she teaches Victorian children's literature and she was writing an article about, um, about Charles Kingsley who wrote a book called the water babies, which, deals with chimney sweeps. And, uh, through that, you know, this was eight or nine years ago, I sort of fell down a rabbit hole of research about that world and it, and it's never really let go of me. So finally sort of my, my calendar is clear and I get to sit down and write this chimney sweep book. Um, and it's, it's been a long time coming. Do you, do you, you, that, do you have an interest, do you have a, like a strong interest in, uh, sort of Victorian era stories or, you know, the 19th, 19th century or is that, does that particularly compelling to you? Um, uh, well, so the night gardener set in the 19th century and I did a lot of research for that. I, I read a lot of 19th century work. I'm actually kind of more compelled by the 18th century. Okay. Um, I think the upheaval that was going on in the world is slightly more compelling to me. Yep. Um, so, you know, uh, Peter Nimble and Sophie Quire are much more kind of 18th century books and, and Peter Nimble kind of in the pattern of like Jonathan Swift yeah. um, and uh, and Sophie Quire a little bit like, you know, the Baron Munchausen stories from from Rudolph Rasp. Um, uh, but I really do like those those moments in history, sort of those last moments where um, uh, where magic and, and science were allowed to coexist. Yep. Um, I think that's a very compelling metaphor for the tension that a person growing up feels uh, between sort of um, – uh, wonder and enchantment and sort of just cold reality, um, which is always a, a tension that I think continues for, for all of my life. So that, that sort of century, uh, from maybe, you know, 1850s into the, or 1750s into the 1850s really feels like a, a perfect atmosphere to tell those sorts of stories. Um, 
that I that I want to tell. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the new book sounds, I can't wait already because it sounds terrific. I mean, it just sounds like the combination of, it sounds like a little bit of Night Gardener, a little bit of Peter Nimble, a little bit of Sophie Choir, kind of all mixed yeah. in. <laughs> it really is. This, is. this is a book that I've I've actually tried writing about five or six times. And yeah. I'll get a couple months into writing and then I, I put it away because I know I'm emotionally not quite ready. Yeah. And so finally, through various life things, I realized like, nope, oh, this is the time. And, and, and you know, it's, it's maybe the discovery that, you know, I write books to kind of save myself, um, and 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 to keep myself from drowning in in various concerns and worries and pains. And so sometimes you have a story that you're just waiting for because you're like, this is a p- very particular kind of life vest for a very particular kind of problem, and uh, and you just have to be patient and wait till your life <laughs> your life and your emotional state lines up with that. And and in the case of Sokolum, you know, after a lot of years of waiting, you know, it feels ready, um, and it's been a real pleasure. Uh, uh, to kind of finally enter into the story fully and, and, and sort of um, be in that world. Well, I mean, I, I, I have to tell you, it's been a, it's been such a, such a pleasure um, chatting with you, Jonathan. I mean, I could, I, unfortunately I would keep your students waiting. I could probably talk to you <laughs> all day long and ask, <laughs> ask a, a hundred more questions, but um, you've been really generous with your time. So I, I appreciate I, it. I, I, I just want to, again, just want to thank you for joining me. And um, again, just, just a, a big fan here, a big admirer of your work. And uh, I hope we get to do this again sometime. Fantastic. Thanks so much, Paul. That's it for today's episode. Thanks for listening, everybody. As always, Telling Lies to Children was brought to you by, well, nobody, just me and my guests. One of the nice things about being completely unknown in the vast world of podcasting is that you don't have to listen to me read 10 minutes worth of ads at the beginning and end of every episode. But I hope you'll check out my website, pauldurhambooks.com. There you can find out more about the Luck Ugly series, you can book a school visit, you can shop the newly opened Deadfish Inn gift shop, or just reach out and say hello. I'd love to hear from you. You can also find links to all of my guests' websites and social media there. So until next time, I wish you happy reading, ugly luck, and I look forward to chatting with you again soon. See you next time.